Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. gentlemen, and thank you for standing by. Welcome to Synovus Energy's third quarter results. As a reminder, today's call is being recorded. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Following the presentation, we will conduct a question and answer session. You can join the queue at any time by pressing star 1. Members of the investment community will have the opportunity to ask questions first. At the conclusion of that session, members of the media may then ask questions. Please be advised that this conference call may not be recorded or rebroadcast without the expressed consent of Synovus Energy. I would now like to turn the conference over to Ms. Sherry Wendt, Vice President, Investor Relations. Please go ahead, Ms. Wendt. Thank you, Operator, and welcome, everyone, to Synovus's 2021 Third Quarter Results Conference Call. I'll refer you to the advisories located at the end of today's news release. These describe the forward-looking information, non-GAAP measures, and oil and gas terms referred to today, and outline the risk factors and assumptions relevant to this discussion. Additional information is available in Synovus's annual MD&A and our most recent annual information form and Form 40X. All figures are presented in Canadian dollars and before royalties, unless otherwise stated. Alex Porbet, our President and Chief Executive Officer will provide brief comments and then we will take your questions. We ask that you please hold off on any detailed modeling questions and instead follow up on those directly with our investor relations team after the call. And if you could please keep to one question with a maximum of one follow-up. You can rejoin the queue for any other questions. Alex, please go ahead. Thanks, Sherry, and good morning, everybody. First, let me update everyone on our current response to COVID-19, which remains a challenge in all of the jurisdictions where we operate. We continue to encourage full vaccination for all of our staff, and we're following the latest advice from public health officials, government, and our own health and safety experts. That includes continued rapid testing at a number of our field locations and mandatory work from home for office and other staff who are able to do so where required by local health officials. In addition, in alignment with recent direction from the Canadian government, we are now requiring proof of full vaccination as of October 30 for travel on all Sonova scheduled and ad hoc flights to and from our sites, including charter, company-owned aircraft, and helicopter flights. As we modify protocols at our operations, we'll continue to follow public health guidance and work closely with governments, health authorities, and industries to protect our people. Safety is foundational to how we operate. I was disappointed by our safety performance and particularly our process safety performance immediately after closing the Husky deal. We learned from these events and took rapid actions to strengthen our combined safety culture. Since then and throughout the second and third quarters, we've seen significant improvement in our safety performance. For example, we cut in half the frequency of process safety incidents in these periods compared to the first quarter. As another example, our conventional business did not have a single recordable occupational injury in the first nine months of this year. 
However, despite these improvements, we've had a couple of concerning safety incidents very recently. These serve as important reinforcement that we must be unrelenting in our top-tier safety journey. At Synovus, there is no priority more important than safety and continuing to do everything we can to make sure everyone goes home safely every day. Turning now to our third quarter results, uh, by now you've all seen our plans to increase shareholder returns, and I'm sure everybody is keen to talk a little more about that. Before we turn to that, though, why don't we start with the operating results that drove this quarter's financial results and led uh, to that shareholder returns announcement. I'm incredibly proud of the accomplishment of our operations teams and assets this quarter and year to date. In the upstream segment, we continue to deliver consistent and strong operating performance with total production of nearly 805,000 BOE per day in the third quarter, an increase of 5% over the second quarter. This production increase was led by record single-day and quarterly average production rates at both Foster Creek and Christina Lake. Production at Christina Lake averaged about 243,000 barrels per day in the third quarter, a 5% increase over the prior record set in the second quarter. This reflected redevelopment and redrill wells coming online in the quarter. These redevelopment wells are high-return, short-cycle projects we'd included in the capital budget this year and reflect the kind of opportunities that exist for Christina Lake. Moving to Foster Creek now, you might remember that on our second quarter conference call, I talked about some emulsion treating issues we had coming out of the turnaround, which impacted production into July. As we discussed in the Q2 call, the teams quickly incorporated learnings and returned Foster Creek to full rates as of mid-July. With our Q3 results, we're pleased to report that the teams not only recovered Foster to full rates, but went on to deliver production of over 200,000 barrels per day from the asset in each of August and September. For perspective, remember that Foster Creek is an asset with a nameplate capacity of 180,000 barrels per day. This is just another demonstration of our in industry-leading asset quality and operating expertise in the oil sands. Turning to the Lloyd Minster Thermal Projects, the benefits of applying Synovus's operating techniques continue to be demonstrated, and the assets delivered an average of about 98,000 barrels per day in the third quarter. Oil Sands operating performance combined with strong realized pricing to deliver segment operating margin of nearly $2 billion, driving the company's total operating margin of $2.7 billion for the quarter. Oil Sands unit operating costs decrease relative to the second quarter, mainly due to increased production from the well pads we brought online and the turnaround activity in the second quarter. Looking at our conventional business, production was down about 7% relative to the second quarter, primarily due to the impact of asset sales as well as a unplanned third-party processing plant outage. Even with lower production volumes, unit operating costs for conventional held flat relative to the second quarter as the business delivered nearly $200 million of operating margin. This was 35% higher than the second quarter operating margin with the increase driven by increased realized, production, uh, realized prices and high production on time. Our offshore operations continue to be a strong contributor to free funds flow delivering operating margin of nearly $330 million in the quarter and operating margin totaling over $1 billion so far this year. Uh, 
Asia-Pacific operations continued performing well, with daily production of 60,000 BOE per day in the third quarter, which was in line with the second quarter. Production rose in Indonesia in response to strong demand, offsetting production impacts of planned maintenance and assets in China during the quarter. And as previously announced in respect of our Atlantic business, we received about $75 million during the quarter from exiting partners as a contribution towards future decommissioning liabilities with the restructuring of working interests in the Terra Nova field. Moving to the downstream segments, in Canadian manufacturing, reliable operating performance continued at the Lloyd Upgrader and Asphalt Refinery with an average utilization of 98%. While utilization and unit refining margins at the Upgrader and Lloyd Refinery were slightly higher than the second quarter, total operating margin of 130 million was about 60 million lower than in Q2 for Canadian manufacturing. The difference was about the amount of a settlement recorded in the second quarter on a customer contract at Bruderheim Crude by Rail Terminal. In U.S. manufacturing, refinery utilization averaged 89% in the quarter, which was 2% higher than the second quarter. This included the impact of some turnaround activity and other minor unplanned outages at some of our partner-operated joint venture refineries during the quarter. Unit operating costs held about flat relative to the second quarter, while unit refining margin increased about 7% to $13.45 per barrel. This included the average unit cost of RINs decreasing by about 10% from the second quarter to about $7.30 per barrel for the quarter. And just I'd remind everybody to keep in mind that's still nearly three times the average unit cost for RINs in the third quarter a year ago. I'll take a moment to discuss in a little more detail our U.S. refining assets where we are operator. At the Lima refinery, recall that throughput rates began ramping up in the second quarter following unplanned outages earlier in the year. In the third quarter, we achieved crude crude utilization of 93% at the Lima refinery. We've been pleased to see performance stabilizing at the refinery, which reflects the Lima's team focus on base operations. We slowed production at the Lima refinery at the end of September in preparation for a planned turnaround we're completing in the fourth quarter. As we've said previously, this is a large turnaround, so it's fair to expect that throughputs will be lower in Q4 as a result. Closing out the discussion of U.S. refining, I'm pleased to report that the Superior Refinery rebuild construction continues to proceed well. Capital spend remains on track, and we still expect rebuild costs to be largely offset by insurance. There's no change uh, to our expectations for the refinery to be ramped back up in early 2023. Focusing on sustainability, we continue critical work on emissions reduction for our company and the broader industry through the Oil Sands Pathways to Net Zero initiative co-founded by Synovus. Pathways is currently advancing its foundational carbon capture, utilization, and storage project which will have phased capacity to transport carbon from more than 20 oil sands operations to a safe storage hub. In addition, the Pathways teams are analyzing other technology opportunities to address GHG emissions in the oil sands. Meanwhile, we're working with both levels of government to ensure the necessary policy and financial support is in place to achieve the Pathways vision and help Canada achieve its climate and economic recovery goals. 
We look forward to sharing more on this and our updated targets uh, for our ESG focus areas at our virtual investor day to be held on December 8th. Turning now to our financial results for the quarter, our strong operating performance combined with rising commodity prices to drive solid financial outcomes. And while it's true that a rising tide lifts all boats, Sonova's maximized the opportunity by increasing oil sands production and optimizing our pipeline capacity to make the most of higher prices. This supported the generation of cash from operating activities of $2.1 billion, adjusted funds flow of $2.3 billion, and free funds flow of $1.7 billion during the quarter. We also took the opportunity to deleverage as quickly as possible. As promised, we applied free funds flow to the balance sheet and we completed strategic financing transactions in the quarter aimed at deleveraging. These transactions extended the overall maturities profile as we executed public offerings of 10 and 30 year notes at attractive rates while repurchasing a portion of our near term maturity notes. These transactions supported deleveraging and helped reduce financing risk in the near term. In addition, we leveraged the strong market to progress several asset sales during the quarter. This included the sale of our shares of Headwater Exploration for net proceeds of nearly $220 million announced in the quarter with proceeds received shortly after quarter end. We also closed previously announced asset sales in the East Clearwater and KBOB areas for combined gross proceeds of about $110 million. All of this has led to Sonovus deleveraging faster than anyone could have imagined a year ago. We finished the third quarter with net debt of about $11 billion, a reduction of $1.4 billion since the end of the second quarter. And today, we are very close to achieving our interim net debt target of below $10 billion. Which takes me to our shareholder returns announcement. We've been clear that increasing shareholder returns would be our first priority upon reaching our interim net debt target. Delivering on that commitment, our board has approved doubling the dividend on our common shares effective for the fourth quarter dividend to 14 14 cents per share. In addition, the board has approved filing of an NCIB application with the TSX for a share buyback program of up to about 150 million common shares which we expect to commence following achievement of net debt below $10 billion. We'll provide more context on how we think about capital allocation at our virtual investor day on December 8th. However, as we've said previously, when we're below $10 billion net debt, you should expect to see a more balanced approach to free funds flow application between further deleveraging and shareholder returns. And at current commodity prices, we would expect to be able to execute our buyback plan in 2022 while achieving net debt under $8 billion around mid-year. This disciplined approach will also support our commitment to achieving mid-triple-B investment grade ratings over time. In closing, this quarter has once again reinforced the strength of our business, including the benefits of our best-in-class assets and reliable operating performance, as well as the financial results driven by those operations. I think it has also once again demonstrated this company's discipline to delivering on our goals. So with that, uh, we're happy to take your questions. Ladies and gentlemen, as a reminder, you can join the queue to ask a question by pressing star 1. 
We will now begin the question and answer session and go to the first caller. We'll take our first question from Greg Party with RBC. Yeah, thanks. Good morning. Thanks for the rundown, um, Alex. A couple of questions for you. The, the first one is, is probably um, just surrounding uh, your appetite for organic investment. You know, once you hit that $8 billion target, let's just say that that's kind of mid next year. How does the, how does the modus operandi begin to change at, at Synovus? Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. You know, I, I think when when you talk about organic in, investment, Greg, and I think I talked about this a little bit at at the last quarter, but you know, I think one of the things, and and I might I might at, at some point turn this over to John to talk a little bit too, but uh, you know, one of the things that I think has been a huge positive out of the out of the Husky transaction is we are finding very very significant opportunities. Uh, to grow production, improve our profitability, and uh, uh, these are largely what I would call small, or smaller greenfield or, or brownfield type opportunities coming out of our existing asset base. And so, uh, you know, I think that that's going to be a continued focus area with us. The other, the other thing I would say before I turn it over to John is, you know, with with the advances the company has made in our operating strategies, you know, there, it's just really, really unlikely, I think, that you're going to see this company announcing any large-scale large greenfield uh, uh, developments any time in, in the near to, to medium term. You know, we, you know if you, a great example, I, I think, would, would be Narrows Lake. You know, that was a project that for, for decades was sought, thought of in this company. And frankly, construction started on it as a uh, standalone greenfield facility. And we've made so many advances in our ability to move emulsion and steam long distances that we are going to develop Narrows Lake, but it's really going to be developed as pads at Narrows Lake uh, with the emulsion being brought back uh, to Christina Lake. Uh, for processing and, and treating, and the, those those kind of advances just give us an opportunity to massively reduce the capital associated with these these sorts of facilities. But maybe I'll turn it over to John. I know he has some thoughts. Yeah. Good morning, Greg. It's it's John. And and maybe um, you know one of the things that I would just remind you um, is just some of the principles we have around organic investment, and you know a couple of those that are core to this company are. You know, any investment that we put into the ground has to return a cost of capital um, return at $45 WTI or $1.70 gas. And I'd, secondly, I guess, remind you that, you know, in terms of sustaining capital, you know, a good run rate for this company is still in that $2.4 billion range. But one of the things, you know, that we've been really looking at, particularly with the asset base that we've inherited, and then again um, with our own assets, is is what are the real short cycle opportunities that we have, you know, that don't require a lot of capital and generate, you know, cost of capital returns well and above 
uh, $45 that we have available to us. And you've seen some of those this quarter in Foster Creek and Christina. And we're working in our, in our deep basin assets as well as our, our heavy oil assets to you know, identify even more of those kind of opportunities. And we think we've built a pretty good um, backlog of those you know, kind of short cycle, low capital, brownfield type debottlenecking um, opportunities that we have that are, are really high return. So, um, you know, I, I would say that, um, you know, we've been pretty clear on, on what we're doing on our capital going forward, and, and you shouldn't expect a left-hand turn, you know, from what we've talked about before, which is largely a sustaining capital budget with some, um, you know, marginal increases going forward. But we have lots of opportunities, I think, on... Um, or across the asset base on that kind of a paradigm. Okay, terrific. Thanks for thanks for clarifying that. And then, uh, just on the non-core asset side, I know you indicated in the release, you know, you've done around 440 million. You've got lots of irons in the fire. What I'm curious about is whether the sharp escalation oil price is actually making you know non-core asset sales harder from a from a bid ask perspective. But any color around the the processes uh, underway would be great. No, I mean, I, 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 uh, my general observation is, you know, that sort of trend to higher, higher commodity prices has kind of been with us for for quite some time, and I, I, I think it's actually helped us in, in terms of creating some competitive tension for those those non, those non core assets, and you know, I think, you know, when, you know, it, 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 it as you're in these processes, I, I would say. Um, you know, as, as commodity prices rise, our expectation of value commensurately rises. And, you know, I'm, I'm quite happy uh, at, at the state that, uh, that we are at uh, with, with our non-core asset divestiture program. Okay. Thanks very much, Alex. Thanks, John. Yeah, thanks, Greg. We'll take our next question from Minnow Holshoff with TD Securities. Uh, thanks, every uh, thanks, and uh, good morning, everyone. Just I'll, I'll start with a question on the the balance sheet, and and like Greg, I, I see you getting to rough numbers, eight billion of of net debt towards the middle of of next year. So, so my question is, can can we assume that the plan is to reset that to to six billion dollars? And more generally, what is the end game for the balance sheet beyond a mid triple B IG rating? And and how are you balancing that against uh, buyback activity? Well, I think in in terms of of ultimately where we want to get to, I mean, we're doing we're doing a lot of work on that. You know, right right now, uh, you know, our, our 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 kind of professed target is is eight billion. And as you make a point, Menno, you know, I I think if if you know you take a look at at your model, you take a look at prevailing market prices, you you can see us hitting that, uh, you know, sometime sometime mid next year, and and that's without giving any credence to asset divestitures. So we, we think that there's an opportunity to hit that target uh, in very, very short order. And I think from from my perspective, uh, you know, that the, the one thing I've learned about this business in my four years running the company is uh, a pristine balance sheet, and, and John calls it the fortress balance sheet, is incredibly important as part of our strategy. I think at eight we're in uh, we're in pretty pretty good shape, but you know you you won't see me 
cry any tears if at moments of time we're, we're below that number. And we'll, we'll probably be able to give a little more guidance as we head into our uh, investor day in December. Any, anything to add on that, Jeff? No, I, I think you hit it, Alex. And I, you know, in, in the long term, I think we we feel the mid triple B is is really the sweet spot, and and we've always articulated is you know eight billion is is more of a ceiling, but we want to hold that through the cycle. And uh, you know, between ten and eight, we'll be balanced between shareholder returns and deleveraging, and then we'll you know rebalance from there uh, sub eight. And just to note, in the quarter, we did go down uh, our net debt did, did go down one point four billion, but I think. As you see that to Alex's point is, is we're very conscious of balancing liquidity, maturities, and de-risking the portfolio. So we took the opportunity here in Q3 really to de-risk that. And if you look at it, really extend our, our bond term uh, by about three years and really balance out that portfolio and de-risk uh, near-term maturities as well. Terrific. Uh, thanks for that. And, and so my, my second question, I believe, is, is for, for John. John, I, I think you talked about rethinking some of your non-operated JVs within your refinery portfolio on the on the last call, and and I think your wording was whether they were held within the right vehicle. Uh, do you have any updated thoughts on that, and and how much of a priority is that uh, that process? You know, I think Menno, we're always challenging our thinking on that. We're always, um, you know, I think progressing. You know, how we're thinking about the downstream and. You know whether non-operated joint ventures are the right vehicles to hold our our refining assets. And what what I would tell you during the quarter is we've been pretty focused on our knitting, and we've talked about synergy capture and deleveraging and um, getting our dispositions um, completed. So you know it, it's something we continue to think about. But um, you know I'd say in the short term uh, our priorities are pretty clear around. Um, the balance sheet managing costs and ensuring that we exit this year, um, you know, where we want to be on, on both of those counts. Thanks a lot, John. And we'll take our next question from Neil Mehta with Goldman Sachs. Hi, good morning. This is Carly on for Neil. Thanks for taking the questions and congrats on the good quarter. Um, the first one was just around the buyback um, and great to see the, the incremental capital returns announced there. Can you just talk a little bit about how you're thinking about the pace of the buyback going forward as we move into 22? Sure, I can. I, I, hopefully I can help a little bit. I'm not sure the answer will be completely satisfactory, but you know, I, I, you know, I always say uh, we endeavor always to do exactly what we say uh, we're going to do. And you'll recall that that I have been saying that we will not buy back shares till we hit our $10 billion net debt target. Uh, people should not think of that as a 2022 exercise. Uh, our reaching uh, $10 billion uh, is imminent. Um, and uh, at that point, uh, I'll feel that that we have fulfilled that that commitment um, in in the market. And you know, I, I you know, I, I, I I'm not sure. Uh, I I think everybody should understand we are very very serious uh, uh, about the share buyback. We wouldn't have announced it if we weren't, and we've announced an intention to complete that share buyback by the end of 2022. You know, beyond that, you know, there, there, there's obviously, you know, going to be puts and takes and market conditions. But, 
you know, I, 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 it is our intention to uh, execute it uh, in, uh, you know, by the end of 2022, and I, I don't think I'm, I'm able to give you much more granularity be, beyond that, other than it's a pretty big number, it's a pretty large commitment, and it's going to take a while to do it, so you can expect it, that we'll be pretty active on it. Great, that's helpful, thank you. And then the follow-up was just kind of around the assets. You know, you guys have made a lot of progress at, at assets like Lloyd since applying some of the Synovus best practices uh, to those operations, and just wanted to get your latest sense on if there are any other opportunities that you've identified um, to drive optimization at the legacy Husky assets. Yep, um, this is Nori Ramsey here. Uh, I run the upstream part of this portfolio. Yep, we're very pleased. Um, we've been applying our Foster Creek and Christina Lake processes over to Lloyd. We actually see we're just scratching the surface at the moment. We see lots and lots of opportunities. We've been able to apply them at Lloyd firstly. That's been the priority. We've been spending capital there, and we've been reducing the, the spend rate, which has been really good. We've also been doing a lot of surveillance um, of the wells, and we see a huge portfolio of opportunities. And we intend to apply that across the other portfolios to Sunrise and Tucker, which haven't been spending capital this year. And as we go into our planned program next year, we see basically applying those FCCL processes to to leverage the same magnitude of uh, advantage going forward. Yeah, it's John. I'll just add on to that too. I think we see a lot of opportunities even beyond the heavy oil assets. You know, in the conventional business, um, you know, I think we've also been able to. Um, work assets like Ansel Wellrich, where um, you know we've again applied sort of our drilling techniques to that too. You know, I think the benefit of the company, and then you know the other thing that we've hinted at, and one of the reasons that we really like this merger was the overall integration uh, opportunities that we have with the upstream and the downstream that we acquired. And we still think that there is, you know, uh, integration opportunities that we will have at Lloydminster where, you know, we acquired a, an upgrader and, a, and an asphalt refinery. And then remember, we're in the midst of, of rebuilding uh, Superior, which is a, you know, a small refinery, but it will eat the acid or eat the molecules, you know, that we produce here in Western Canada. So, you know, we think there's opportunities across the portfolio to improve, um, you know, the operating metrics in the upstream, but uh, longer term, we also think there's integration opportunities between the upstream and the downstream that we've acquired. Yeah, and it's Alex. Maybe, maybe I'd, I'd make, I'd, I'd just make one comment, and I think both John and Nori are, are probably too bashful to say this, but, but I was looking on our uh, energy regulator in Alberta's website the other day and, and saw that the top 15 oil wells in the province are all Synovus wells. And that is a testament uh, to uh, the operating techniques and strategy that Nori's team uh, bring to, to that upstream and Drew's team on the conventional, very, very similar. That's great. Appreciate the color. Thanks. And we'll take our next question from Phil Gresh with J.P. Morgan. Yes, hi, good morning. Um, <clears throat> thanks for all the uh, updates today around capital allocation. I did have one follow-up with respect to the dividend piece um, of, of the plan moving forward. John, just any thoughts you could share around how you think about the right framework for, for dividend as a, as a percentage of the capital allocation, whether it's you're focused on a break-even or a percentage of cash flow or something like that, at, perhaps on a longer-term basis? Well, 
I can give you my thoughts, Bill, but remember, this isn't my decision in isolation. This is something that the board thinks about um, pretty regularly. Um, but what it, you know, what I would say, and we had a long discussion um, around this at the board meeting, and um, you know, lots of views. Our view around the dividend is is that it needs to be sustainable and paid out of free cash flow at forty-five dollars. So you know, under that scenario, this company still has lots of room. Um, to grow the dividend. Similarly, we would be of the view that um, share buybacks need to happen when the share price isn't reflecting its net asset value at mid-cycle pricing. And when we looked at you know the shareholder returns that we wanted to implement um, in this quarter and recognize this is a point in time, you know this isn't the definitive discussion we're going to have on shareholder returns. We felt that there was much more value uh, to the shareholder in us buying back shares at these kind of valuations relative to increasing the dividend uh, even farther. What I would also say is that, you know, at these kind of uh, commodity prices, this company's um, generating, you know, six to seven hundred million of free cash flow a month. So, you know, these discussions on, and how we um, think about shareholder returns are really going to be dependent on, on that. Uh, framework that I, I talked about as well as sort of price movements of our equity in the future. So, you know, I think this will be, you know, plenty of room for future discussion on this, but this is where we are today. This is kind of the point in time and how we think we can maximize the return to the shareholders. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Um, in terms of uh, CapEx, um, as you look at 2022, uh, you know, do you think you can stick with the you know the same kind of sustaining framework with maybe a little bit of growth capital and, and superior or you know any inflation pressures or other things that we should be thinking about? Yeah, I think I think we've been really clear, Phil, that 2.4 billion is the right number across this asset base to sustain production in and around sort of 775 to 800,000 barrels a day, as well as keep the downstream in that safe and stable condition. That continues to be a good run rate, and you can hold that for the foreseeable future. We've also been pretty clear that over the last few years, we have underinvested in the upstream, and there is some catch-up to do. So it's, it's not something that's, um, you know, as I mentioned before, a left-hand turn from where we've been, but there will be some incremental capital um, to catch up uh, on some uh, underspending that we've had in the upstream, and, and as you mentioned, we still have to finish Superior. You know, and we think there'll be you know two to three hundred million more uh, that we're going to have to um, spend in 2022 to finish that project. But again, we believe that most of that capital will be covered off with insurance proceeds. So when we do release the budget, uh, Cam, I think we're in December. Around December 5 uh, of this year, you'll see a, you'll see a full picture. But nobody should be surprised. You know that'll be very consistent with what we've talked about through this year, and you know what we've talked about since we made the acquisition of Husky. Got it. And then just on the superior proceeds, um, is there a way to think about the cadence of uh, what has been spent versus what has been collected so far? Obviously, there will be the spend next year and the, the related collections for that piece, but is there any kind of additional catch-up that we need to be thinking about relative to what has already been spent? 
Yeah, it's Jeff here. Yeah, there will be some catch-up. I'll just give you some color. Uh, we, we brought in about $100 million USD in this uh, past quarter. I would expect us to uh, exceed that in Q4. And so you will see it uh, at some point rateable here lagging the spend. And then I think, uh, you know, there will be a catch-up here as we get into uh, early part of next year uh, with the insurance providers. But that's just kind of where we're at. And and we've, uh, you know, we're a few hundred million in on both the PD and the business interruption recoveries to date. And, you know, and as I said, we were about 100 million this past quarter. I expect to exceed that uh, in Q4. And then we'll have some probably catch up into next year. Great. Thank you for that. Go to our next question from Dennis Fong with CIBC World Markets. Hi, good morning, and thanks for taking my questions. Uh, really appreciate the call that you provided around uh, capital allocation as well as the balance sheet. Um, if it's possible, I'd like to switch over to the operational side a little bit more. Um, we're, we're obviously seeing um, a little bit of a, an energy crunch within Europe and Asia. Um, just wondering in terms of if you could give incremental context. I know you had a, a small comment there on um, the Indonesian assets, but um, how are you seeing Asia Pac as a whole in terms of relative gas demand, just given obviously you guys garner quite strong pricing in that region and that asset generates a lot of free cash flow. So just curious as to what you guys are seeing with respect to Q4 and Q1 upcoming as well. Yeah, Dennis, it's it's John. What I'd and you know, Nori may want to chime in on this as well, but you know, what I would um remind you is that when we sell gas in Asia, whether it be uh, with our South Pacific or South uh, Asia assets just off the coast of China or Indonesia, this is all fixed price gas and it's all governed by contracts that have minimum and maximum DCQs. So, you know, the volume and the price is, is really set by the contract. And what we've been seeing, you know, and this should surprise nobody, I guess, is that the, um, uh, you know, the PRC has been maximizing. Um, you know, the daily takes from the assets from uh, the South China Sea, and we've had rateable takes um, off of Indonesia. So, you know, that's been a, a, you know, I think a very good news story for us, and and Alex has kind of talked uh, about um, the amount of free cash flow that those assets have generated, you know, through the past nine months and where we see that going through the end of the year. You know, one of the things we are working on is increasing um, our gas sales there. So looking for, um, you know, with our partner CNOC to increase the amount uh, of gas sales that we can take into um, uh, into China. And we've made some progress on that. You know, nothing is, is imminent there. But, um, you know, those are things that are opportunities for us to increase our gas sales. The other thing I would kind of remind you is that, um, you know, they, although today we're selling somewhere between eight to 10,000 barrels a day in Indonesia, we have three expansion projects underway that'll take that um, production up to about 20 to 22,000 barrels a day um, at the end of 2023. And, and those barrels, although it's a, a relatively small number, will generate about 250 million of free cash flow a year. So it's a very profitable business. It isn't volatile on pricing, and it's not volatile on the offtakes. It's all really governed um, by those gas contracts um, in in South China. I would just add, Dennis, um, um, our gas is uh, rich, so it has has liquid, high liquid content. 
and we're actually seeing very, very strong Brent plus prices as we do our liquid liftings as well. So across that whole portfolio, uh, gas and liquids, we're, we're kind of maximising as much as we can contractually do at the moment. And we see that going forward for the rest of the year. Great. Great. I, I appreciate that color. Um, and then further, uh, my, my second question here is, is also shifting over to more of the ESG side. You've, you've outlined a, a couple uh, carbon capture projects um, that you're participating in within the Lloyd region, um, as well as uh, further kind of work on, on a solvent pilot uh, at, at Foster Creek. I was just curious if we could get a quick update on that side, as well as any of the, we'll call it key uh, items or takeaways that you're looking for from those those various uh, pilots or, or initial uh, projects, um, both at uh, Pikes Peak and uh, the Lloyd Ethanol plant. Sure, ha happy to do that, Dennis. I think what I might do, uh, Rona Del Ferrari is here, and Rona is our chief sustainability officer, and this is uh, probably a good time to introduce her uh, uh, on our uh, on our call. But Rona, why don't you take that? Hi, Dennis. Thanks for your interest in that. So right now, we plan to come out with our revised ESG targets along with our investor day in December. And part of that will be some examples of how we expect to achieve them, both the near term and then our longer term ambition to get to net zero. Uh, this work is also connected to the Oil Sands Pathways to Net Zero initiative that we're part of, along with, uh, we just announced uh, ConocoPhillips Canada joined today, so along with five of our other Oil Sands peers. And so those projects in particular that you're mentioning, some are at different stages. So some are at the feasibility stage that we're looking at. Um, and then there's projects to reduce our emissions, such as what we're doing to reduce methane in the conventional area that are already well underway. And so there are many pathways, as the name of the broader initiative suggests, for how we're going to achieve these targets. Uh, a lot of them are the bigger projects, such as larger capture, carbon capture and storage uh, that we're looking at for our oil sands assets. We're needing to decide whether that is something that we are going to pursue. But we're, we're um, right now working closely across our organization, both with the operations groups as well as with the technology development group, to look at uh, different ideas and, and really we see that there are many different solutions that we can pursue. Uh, we're working closely with the federal and provincial governments right now because as they've made really uh, strict uh, commitments to achieve uh, the, their, their Paris goals, they've, they've talked about how they need to uh, work with industry on things like tax incentives, uh, grants, to really encourage some of these early stage technologies that are, are really, um, you know, need a lot of collaboration with the clean tech industry, with government, with industry, and with others to get them off the ground. So those projects that you talked about and you mentioned in particular will we'll provide a bit more color on, on some of them when we get to Investor Day. Okay, great. Sounds, sounds like I have to hold tight for, for, for the details then. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate it. Thank you uh, for taking my questions. Thanks, Dennis. And we'll take our next question from Matt Murphy with Tudor Pickering Holds. Hi, thanks, and good morning. Just um, on the operations side, I was wondering if you could comment on how we should think about the path forward for Foster Creek. It's just thinking primarily on the new pads that came on that appear to be running at, I, I think, record rates. 
I guess the question is, should we anticipate these falling to uh, lower plateau rates, or would you characterize them as already in that kind of standard sort of sag D plateau rate in the uh, curve? Yeah, it's uh, Nori here. Yeah, we're very pleased with the strong production we're getting from our, our west arm. There's been three pads being brought on. I mean, just, just for a bit of scale, um, W34, one of the pads is doing steadily for the last 60 days about 40,000 barrels a day and another one, W35, 20,000 barrels a day. Um, very strong production. We're benefiting very, very deep pay, very clean pay, and, and very high ops availability in our plant at the moment. Um, we actually have, if you like to you know, think of it this way, we have about three pads a year that we bring on, and we augment it with redrills and redevelopment opportunities. So we basically see a path forward to sustaining strong production for the remainder of the year. And then, you know, into next year, we'll, we'll uh, investor day, we'll, we'll kind of like give you an update of the range then. Okay, great. And uh, so the follow-up just that at Liwan, maybe following up there, uh, I was wondering if you could remind us on how we should think about the, the pricing mechanism for, I think, the legacy Liwan going forward, not the, uh, the 29.1 component of sales. I think going back a year or more, there was some concern that it might get repriced uh, lower, but we're obviously in a bit of a different uh, global gas market today. Thanks. Yeah, um, we we have a we have a mechanism where just now we're overlifting above at 120 percent, and it goes back to the the contract amounts uh, mid next year. So um, the actual rates are based obviously on the, the the market gas and oil prices in China. So um, we're still working within those kind of confines, but production basically goes from this 120% lifting to 85% lifting next year. Um, and as John mentioned, we're actually looking at potential alternative commercial models to actually help sustain gas production at a high level going forward. Yeah, Matt, it's John. If, if you're actually looking for the, the mechanisms on the three producing areas as well as Indonesia. Why, why don't you give in, um, IR a call and they can kind of walk you through that. If you look at the quarter though, on a blended basis, and it's because as Nori mentioned, you know, they're overlifting relative to the um, normal DCQ. You know, the blended price in, in China was about $12 an M uh, for the quarter. But there's there's a few puts and takes in there, and, and you got to remember that we have different working interests in 29.1 relative to 3.1 and 34.2. Um, but IR can kind of walk you through the the kind of the sliding scale as well as the difference in pricing as it relates to the layers of um, offtake that uh, that CNOC is entitled to. Okay, great, thanks, team. We'll go to our next question from Manav Gupta with Credit Suisse. Um, hey, hey guys, congrats on re-instituting uh, the buyback. Um, I'm just wondering, uh, is there a way any kind of uh, agreement can be worked out where the shares that Conoco has, which they own, can be traded in a block to you directly or, or, or so they don't come to the market and then you have to buy them? I mean, is this something possible or something could be worked out on that direction? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's Jeff here. I think, uh, you know, this uh, process, we kind of view the NCIB as is obviously 
through that execution is more open market purchases. And, and I think that provides us flexibility in execution. I think Conoco has been, you know, looking at the public disclosures fairly rateable in, in how they've uh, been winding down uh, their position. Uh, you know, I think through the NCIB, uh, you know, we have flexibility to do the open market, and we feel that will provide the support uh, to the share price and, and really uh, bounce out in the market. But I think we feel this is the best uh, mechanism we have now and, the, and provides us flexibility in execution versus, uh, you know, a direct uh, block purchase. And, and Manav, it's Alex, and, and just kind of a, if, if anyone missed that, I mean, you know, if, if you look at the scale of, of the NCIB that we announced, you know, we, we always, you know, we're, we're always talking to Conoco and, you know, they, they're, we're always trying to see if there's an opportunity. But I, I would say that we're pretty confident that even in the event there isn't an opportunity to do one of those big block trades with the size of the NCIB, you know, that we're contemplating, we believe that we can more than offset any of the pressure that's coming on the stock through uh, the Conoco sort of rateable uh, sell down. Perfectly clear. My follow-up uh, quickly is on the carbon capture and sequestration, and you kind of mentioned some of the things that there will have to be a collaboration between you and the government and stuff. And I'm just trying to understand from the perspective of of, of Sonovas or the consortium, um, any idea of what kind of uh, partnership or support the government could provide, whether they could chip in with some of the capex, whether they could give you more in terms of carbon credits, set a price, you know, anything on that direction, what kind of help would the consortium be looking from the government to take this thing and, and make it work? Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, to, to take a cut at, cut at that, Manav, and Rona may, may jump in, but I mean, the, you know, you, you would have seen uh, uh, probably about three or four months ago, the federal government announced a, uh, 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 I, I don't know what a process with respect to setting up uh, uh, a, a tax credit uh, for people uh, investing in carbon capture sequest and sequestration, and that's a process. There, there's a cons consultation process that that's been going on for quite some time. I, you know, I I, I think there's there's many many ways that that governments can be of help and and that we can collaborate with governments and you've seen that you know you see that in norway you see it in u.s uh governments using you know tax policy uh to uh, make it easier uh for new entrants uh in in this this kind of technology so you know i think that that to me is is the most obvious uh first step uh on uh on our collaboration with with the government and I think that consultation is 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 going pretty well, but maybe I'll turn it over to Rona. Yeah, no, we're having excellent talks with uh, with all layers of government on this, and again, it's it's a shared goal that we have. Uh, it's it's Canada's goal to get to net zero, and it's our industry's goal and Sonovus's goal to get to net zero by 2050, and so it only makes sense that we're working closely together. And what we're talking to them about is, you know, the tax credit in particular, or the investment tax credit that has been announced already is for CCUS. It's very specific. And that will, that will be, we expect, a large part of how it makes the CCUS projects economic to be able to proceed. Because, again, CCS works. We know that CCS works. It's been proven many times. 
Um, but at the scale that we're talking about, it's never been done before. And so there are a lot of, um, there, there are some risks associated with that. And, and anytime that you're in any industry, when you're going forward with something that's at early stages, you have to de-risk that. And part of that is when government steps in to encourage these technologies that are for the benefit of you know, all Canadians, but also that the industry can progress. And the other things that we're talking to the government about is really multi-departmental. And so there's, there's certain opportunities um, through programs to encourage technology development in uh, Natural Resources Department, in the Environment Climate Change Canada Department, even the Canadian Infrastructure Bank has some opportunities. And so government departments, when we, when we talk to them, we're not just talking to one uh, ministry or department, we're talking to multiple departments. And they're working with us to say, these are the types of uh, initiatives that we can provide to you to support and really um, grow this clean tech industry in Canada, working along with the oil and gas sector so that we have both a thriving oil and gas sector that's low cost and low carbon, but also a thriving clean tech sector that is feeding into the oil and gas sector some of these technologies that can then be exported around the world. So lots of opportunities that the government acknowledges and that our industry does as well. Thank you for taking my questions. Thanks, Manip. We'll go to our next question from Harry Matier with Barclays. Hey, good morning. Um, you know, one one follow-up I have on the balance sheet is that you know you, you made the rationale for the refinancing transaction very clear in terms of pushing out and de-risking the maturity calendar. But you know, I guess thinking through it, doing that has a bit of a cost in terms of shrinking the available pool of shorter-term debt that can be cheaply paid down in advance. And, and you know, rating agencies do vary in approach, but generally, gross debt tends to be viewed a little bit more important than net debt. So. You know, if you want to get to Mitchell will be how should we think about you guys converting net debt reduction into gross debt reduction in the next year or so? Yeah, it's it's Jeff here. I mean, I think if you I'll use Q3 as a color. I mean, we'll be we'll be balancing the approach. We there was opportunities, I think, in the market to you know effectively refinance, de-risk the front end. Uh, you know, and and obviously, I think we'll uh, continue to look at different opportunities to uh, you know attack the uh, the gross debt here over time and. And you know, look, the market moves, and I think uh, you know we're seeing upward movements on on interest rates. But we'll be we'll be balanced in that, and I think you know we, I think we'll continue to focus on uh, you know more at the front end. But again, it's market uh, market dependent, and I think uh, you know I think over the next little bit, you could probably see us hold a little bit more cash than we have uh, that we say our floor is of a billion dollars. But uh, look, I think we saw an opportunity in the market uh, to de-risk, take care of the front end uh, at an effective cost, uh, save. You know, over 40 million annually in interest, and and uh, you know, as the market presents itself, uh, we'll be uh, we'll be judicious and, and take those opportunities on the gross debt. So expect us to balance all of that, both uh, the maturities, the liquidity, and then the gross deleveraging. And and uh, you know, and I think we've worked through and obviously have very good relationships with the rating agencies as well. Okay, thanks for that. And then switching gears a bit, um, just wondering if you have any color on the the recent widening in the WCS diff in the past few weeks. You know, what might be driving that? It's not necessarily what we would have expected after L3R started Lineville, but you know, I know it also had narrowed into that event. So just curious, if you have perspective there. Yeah, Harry, it's uh, Keith there. You know, I think uh, I think it's a bit of two stories. Um, you know, we're seeing a bit of widening on the heavy barrel down in the U.S. Gulf Coast. Um, there's some refinery turnarounds that are happening in the in the Gulf Coast um, that are kind of pushing that a little wider. 
Also, I think with uh, kind of natural gas prices uh, globally, it's causing some refiners to choose to uh, try to run a little leaner and, and reduce kind of their operating costs and, and not process as many heavy barrels. Uh, when you back up to uh, Alberta, obviously inventories are running high and uh and you know we're seeing some uh some increased production uh you know right here at Synovus we're we're hitting some records so um you know that's kind of putting a little pressure we're into the winter blend season so condensate usage is up um and so you know you couple that with uh line 3 coming on and taking additional egress out and kind of rail running at uh at minimum you know kind of baseline rates you know we're kind of seeing uh the differential uh, normalize around that $15, $16, but, but a lot of it's because of what's uh, what's going on down in the Gulf Coast. Great. That's helpful. Thank you. Once again, as a reminder, join the queue to ask a question by pressing star 1. Again, that is star 1 for questions. There are no further questions at this time. Mr. Forbay, I'll turn the call back to you for any additional or closing remarks. Thanks very much, and uh, thanks, everybody, for uh, your continued interest in, in the company. And with that, we'll sign off and let everyone get back to their day. Take care. That today's call. Thank you for your participation. You may when you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.